You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Before we get started for our episode today, just a brief announcement, something very exciting that we want to announce, that on September 23rd, you should put this in your calendar. Get your phone out right now. September 23rd, we'll have a course, a special course, one night only, on the book of Genesis. And this is a way to start talking about Genesis before we launch the second edition of Genesis for Normal People. Details on that forthcoming. But for now, one night only, September 23rd, Pete's going to be talking about Genesis, the most controversial, misunderstood, and abused book of the Bible. Normally, we'd, we would charge about you know 99 bucks or something like that for this course, but for this night, it's pay what you want. So, no human is going to be turned down for that. Pay whatever you can. We'd be, we'd be just grateful to have you there as we talk about Genesis, connect with other people, learn a thing or two. So, just go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash course, and you can sign up there for the next month to, uh, yeah, learn about Genesis. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Today, we're going to talk about right and wrong. We're going to talk about morality and ethics and the Bible and how that all fits together. And today's episode is brought to you by... This uh, John Cooper, who is the lead singer of the Christian band Skillet, who had a long Facebook post this past week called What in God's Name is Happening to Christianity, which is where I had the idea of, hey, maybe it's time to talk a little bit about the Bible and morality. Uh, he, he, in this post, takes to task some of those who are quote unquote like falling away from Christianity, which is really like falling away from evangelicalism and not finding it tenable anymore. Really, it, these kind of celebrities within Christian subculture, like worship leaders and uh, authors and others who are disavowing this certain way of being Christian. And uh, so the, he has this one part in here I'll quote about, uh, he says, They'll say, these people who fall away, they'll say, I'm disavowing my faith, but remember, love people, be generous, forgive others. Um, why? That's actually not human nature. No child is ever born and says, 
I just want to love others before loving myself. Those are biblical principles taught by a prophet, priest, king of kings, who wants us to live by a higher standard, which is not an earthly standard, but rather the kingdom of God standard. Therefore, if Jesus is not the truth, and if the word of God is not absolute, then by preaching Jesus' teachings, you are endorsing the words of a madman. So that's John Cooper basically uh, saying a lot of things that I was taught growing up. So this isn't about this isn't about John. It just tipped me off to this idea of let's talk about where our ethics come from and how does the Bible fit into that? And is the Bible a good place to go to get our ethical foundations, our moral foundations? Because a lot of uh, people's question underneath the question, what is the Bible and what do we do with it? At least for me growing up, it was. How does the Bible tell us right from wrong? How are we supposed to be moral and ethical? That's, I think, a lot of where our angst comes from, is sort of giving us moral direction and having the Bible be that for us. So today we're going to look at Christian ethics and the Bible, and I'm, I'm going to oversimplify, so all you ethics nerds out there, I apologize, but not really, because this is the Bible for normal people, for crying out loud. Anyway... I want to start with these three concepts that came to mind that I grew up with when I was reading John's little essay that made me think uh, that this is where this is where we should begin. And I heard these a lot when I taught ethics at a university. So this was things that students would have come to class with too that kind of undergirded how they saw right and wrong. So one kind of principle they had was if you don't agree that the Bible is the sole source of telling you how to live your life, it's because you're involved in some sin and you don't want to be held accountable for it. That was common. Two, if you don't believe in an inerrant Bible, how do you even know what good or bad is? So the idea there is the Bible is the only place we can get the idea of right and wrong. So if you don't believe the Bible's inerrant, you are left kind of to your own devices. How would you even know what good or bad is? And three, if you don't have the Bible or a church to police your behavior, you're just going to end up some sort of lustful animal out there on a rampage doing it, whatever it is you want. So I, I flat out disagree with all of these. I think these are unhelpful ways of thinking about morality. And really, they're, they're scare tactics. They're a way to keep the people who are on the inside, on the inside, sort of like, well, if you start questioning these are the kind of places you'll end up. You'll end up just floating in Neverland or you'll end up, up you know, on the streets in some rampage, moral rampage. So I don't agree that if you don't agree that the Bible is the sole source of telling you how to live your life, it's because you're involved in some sinful behavior and don't want to be held accountable for it. I think that's an unhelpful way of thinking about it. And it keeps people from asking good questions and thinking outside the box. And it's just not true. Lots of people have different ideas about the Bible and morality, and it has nothing to do with their own personal life and sins. Two, if you don't believe in the inerrant Bible, how do you know what good or bad is? I think we can know from a lot of things what good or bad is. We get a lot of our ethics and morality, which we'll talk about later, from the culture, the community, tradition, experience, our parents. But by and large, and this will be a theme in this episode, as a Christian, I think it's also the Spirit of God. In John, Jesus says that when he leaves, it will be the Spirit of God that guides us into all truth. It doesn't say the Bible will, but the Spirit of God, uh, as I would say, in, in community. So, then three, if you don't have the Bible or church to police your behavior, you'll just go on some rampage. 
this is simply not true. I know a lot of atheists who don't go on sort of moral benders. So, and, and in fact, if we want to be honest, some of the people I know who kind of do whatever they want in terms of morals and ethics are leaders in churches and Christians. So this doesn't really hold water in the opposite way either. So as with most things, you know, it's more complicated than these three kind of tropes or concepts. It's, it's just more complicated. So we're going to make, we're going to messify this. So we're going to look at the source. So some people say that the, the source of our ethics to look at, this is where we get our sense of right and wrong from, is the character of God that we find in the Bible. And of course, this is problematic because the Bible, as we've talked about a lot, is ambiguous and diverse. So God's character is seen in a few different ways, you know. The, the most basic and probably helpful is that God is love. And we get this from 1 John 4, 8, you know, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And then, you know, John comes to the conclusion a few verses later, makes this ethical claim, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. So, you know, basically our love for our brother and sister comes from the fact that God is love. And he says that in 1 John 4, 20. So that's that's all fine and good, and I think that's, yeah, that would be really good to base our morality and how we see right and wrong on the character of God that we find in 1 John 4. The challenge is that's not the only portrait of the character of God we get. In, in Psalm 11, verse 5, it says, The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. So not only is God love, but God also hates and then he says again in Malachi 1, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. So in his effort to talk about his love for Israel, he slips in there that Esau he has hated. So, we have some conflicting pictures of the character of God. So, if you just say the character of God is found in the Bible, that's the foundation of what's right and wrong, we end up confused. Uh, There's a few other examples of this, too, where in Ezekiel chapter 18, God's basically saying the one who sins is the one who will die. This is around punishment. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. So, if you're righteous, that's credited to you. Your wickedness will be charged against you. It's not passed generation to generation. But in Exodus 20, it says, I, the Lord, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So, again, we get these conflicting views of who God is and what God does. And then, of course, within the realm of violence, which we have talked about, at length here on the podcast, we have uh, a challenge there, uh, just in the character of God, not necessarily that it's conflicting, but that we have a violent God. And I have a problem saying that we base our morality and ethics on something that seems so intuitively wrong to imitate. I mean, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, we have this weird incident where God kills 70,000 people because David took a census to find out how many army-ready men he had, 
which seems a little bit, you know, God, that's kind of overkill, dude. 70,000 people because David took a census. And not only that, but we read that it was God who incited David to do it in the first place. And we know this is really problematic because it, over in, uh, I think it's First Chronicles 21, the chronicler actually changes it to Satan. Satan incites David to take the census because it would be, it's problematic that God not only kills 70,000 people for David's uh, blip, but he's the one who caused the blip. So yeah, that's a challenge. And then of course the Canaanite genocide as well. So, you know, this is problematic to say that we just base our morality and our ethics on the character of God. We're, we'll get there in a minute. I don't want to spoil the, the point, but we have to have something else besides just that statement, the character of God, because it's too ambiguous. It's problematic. And I, I just want to conclude with this statement in Isaiah 45, 7, which troubled me as a kid. This was kind of one of those verses that I know exactly when and where I read it for the first time because it blew my mind and it started me on a trajectory to where I am now. It says, uh, this is God talking, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. And I remember as probably a 10-year-old, 11-year-old reading this and thinking, what do I do with this? Um, that God creates darkness, God creates disaster. So, not to get too into the theology of this, but this is one of the challenges, I think we've mentioned it before, one of our guests maybe mentioned it, this is one of the challenges of Israelite religion and then Christianity being a monotheistic religion, where there's one God. Because if you have, say, two gods or multiple gods, you can account for the problem of evil or where evil comes from by having this anti-God deity, which is in some ways what Satan became in our tradition. But if you only have one true God, you end up saying things like it says in Isaiah 45, that God then has to create disaster and create darkness, because where else would it come from? So, you, you solve a lot of other problems by having one God, a monotheistic God, but you create a few as well. One of is this character of God question becomes vague at best and uncertain. So, if we're not using the character of God as the basis for our ethics, then we're left without absolutes. You know, it's not clear. It's, it's, it's ambiguous. So, how, how, you know, how do we make moral decisions based on something that's unclear and ambiguous? Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact <laughs> instruction level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online, up to half off on select plants and other deals. 
And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. So this throws into question our second option for where our morals come from that I get a lot, which is the Bible itself. Where do you learn right from wrong from the Bible? So, as we mentioned, just like with God's character, there's other parts of the Bible that are ambiguous, and the Bible is also ancient, and so there's some stuff that's really irrelevant. And, you know, in Leviticus 19, we have some of these irrelevant laws. Don't eat meat with blood still in it. I know growing up in Texas, we do not follow that rule. No tattoos. Don't clip the edges off your beard, which also implies that men have a beard. So... These are irrelevant. You know, do we follow all of them? Even if they seem ancient and irrelevant to us, how do we make a decision which ones to follow and which ones not to? And, and there are some that are maybe even problematic and not just irrelevant, like women on their period are unclean and anything that a woman touches is unclean. Uh, of course, we have in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. So, if we say the Bible is our, just kind of the Bible itself, quote unquote, the Bible itself is where we get our morals from, and we just follow that unquestioningly, we end up with, one, probably an impossible load of rules and regulations and instructions from an ancient world, but also with some problematic morals about women in particular in this case. Hey everyone, my name is Joel Beebe from Columbus, Ohio, and I'm part of the producers group here at the Bible for Normal People. One thing I've appreciated about this podcast is the way that Pete and Jared address some of the concerns that I developed while attending a conservative church. If you have gotten something from this free podcast, I want to take a moment to mention how you can support Pete and Jared in their work. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as $1 per month, you can be part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. As a gift for your support, we have book studies, chat groups, and lots of videos from Pete and Jared. So check it out at patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people. 
If you aren't able to support the show financially, go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. That can go a long way to help others find us. One group in particular we want to thank is our producers group, who work hard to tell Pete and Jared where they're messing up and how to do better. Thanks to Ashley Timberlake, Jeff Paulus, Danita Fenn, Aaron Brown, Amber Gee, Dan Dietz, Sparrow Day, and Chad Hamilton. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. Now, back to the podcast. Now, people come up with ways to avoid these conclusions. They come up with ways to avoid saying tattoos are still wrong morally, that we still shouldn't eat meat with blood in it, that we shouldn't clip the edges off our beard, that women aren't unclean. And that's kind of the point. We come up with ways around it. And that's an important thing to hang our hat on and just pause for a minute. We find ways around these things. If you're using a measuring stick to figure out what in the Bible is still applicable today, then the Bible itself isn't where your morals come from. It's the measuring stick. And we all have one. We all have a filtering system, a measuring stick, a measuring rod that we put the Bible next to and judge and discern what is still applicable and what isn't. But that's if we say that, then the Bible itself isn't our standard. Because, again, we have to have another standard. Because it's ambiguous, there's irrelevant things, there's narrative and prose and laws for a specific people and moral injunctions. And, and when where, where are we getting... It's not a systematic text that God says, and in the 21st century in America, these are the rules and laws that you should abide. So, what are we to do? Well, we have to have a standard. We have to have a filter. And that's where our morals or ethics come from. So, it's, it doesn't answer the question to say the Bible or the character of God, because we have a filter by which we have to adjudicate or decide what parts of the character of God we follow and which ones we don't. What parts of the Bible do we emphasize or de-emphasize or reinterpret to make it more palatable for today? So that comes to our third source. So the character of God and the Bible, those are often, those are common ones. This third one I like a lot better, which is Jesus. Jesus is our measuring stick. That's how we evaluate what's right and wrong in the Bible. I like this one better, but even this has its challenges. You know, the main three are that it's contextual. Uh, How would we know what's normative and, and what's not? Like, when, when is Jesus just talking to his disciples and when is he talking to the church at large? And it doesn't even make sense to ask the question of when he's talking to the church at large. Uh, for example, you know, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Does he mean that for all of us, that we're all supposed to be fishers of men? Or is he being clever because the people in the store he's talking to are fishermen? So, he's, it's a play on words for that context for those people did he mean for all of us to be fishers of men? Um, and how are we making that decision? There is a decision to say that when Jesus is talking to someone, he's just talking to them. And other times when Jesus is talking, he's talking to all of us in some moral way. And we've come up with sophisticated ways to do that. But my point again is the, the sophisticated way we do that is more of our moral standard than Jesus in that moment if that makes sense. 
Not as much as I think the character of God and thinking of the Bible as a whole, but I still think it's worth mentioning. And then limited. We only have a small window into Jesus's life. So that's, that's a challenge too. Jesus doesn't address a lot of the moral situations we find today. And I, I don't know if that was even Jesus's purpose necessarily. So, um, that can be problematic as well. And then third is Jesus can also be ambiguous. I, you know, however, I think Jesus is ambiguous on purpose. That's the point of, say, his parables. They are there to make you think. You know, there might be multiple meanings within each one. It's like the Proverbs. You know, they're there to help you wrestle with, struggle into a life well lived. But it's hard to make you know, hard and fast ethical rules out of, say, the parables. Now you have the Sermon on the Mount and you have uh, kind of the kingdom ethics of the, of the Sermon on the Mount and others. So, uh, you know, I think that it's a better filter or measuring stick if we're going to have one from the Bible that it's through the lens of Jesus. You know, if we're talking about Christian ethics, using Jesus' example in the Bible as that filter or measuring stick is, is far superior to, quote, the character of God or the Bible itself for the reasons that we've, we've laid out. What we do get from Jesus, at the very least, is this overriding principle of love. That's not a specific rule or guideline, but it's the bedrock of a Christian ethic. It can be a guiding principle. So for me, I think the Christian, I think of Christian ethics as heavily dependent on the Spirit of God, as we talked about, to guide us as a community of faith. To use the Bible then as a primary source for the language we use to talk about how we might live today. It's, it's, the, it's the fodder, it's the word bank, it's the tradition, it's the rooting, it's the grounding for where we then uh, talk about these things like morality and ethics. I think it's great, it's a great source, it's a great fountain to go back to again and again, a great well to pull from. But we always have to use that filter, our, our guidelines. Our, we have to take our ethics and our experiences to the Bible and make decisions from there. So, you know, what is this kind of, what's the summary here of what I'm thinking of as we think about a Christian ethic? One, I think you can't get away if, we, if we're following Jesus as that rubric. And, you know, there's an organization called Red Letter Christians which I take to mean, I don't know what it means, but I take to mean as we read the whole Bible through this lens of Jesus, which again, doesn't solve all of our problems. So again, if we're looking for certainty and the rule book of life, just following Jesus isn't going to give us that, but it narrows it down and it gives us this filter. And for me, that filter, the, the ultimate expression of that filter is love always wins. Love always wins. But number two Wisdom is necessary. It's not secondary, but necessary. Wisdom is necessary to figure out what is loving. In our culture, in our context, in our current situation, and those are kind of concentric circles as we get more specific. So we can always say love wins. That's wonderful. But I think ethics is about figuring out what is loving in a current culture. I think what is loving shifts in culture. When we talk about women, for example, we would answer that question, what is loving differently 150 years ago, than we would answer it today. And that's important that we continually look at our context and our culture. 
And then we have to look at our specific situation. I tend to be more of a, a situational ethicist because I think wisdom requires that we look at specific situations in the same way that the wisdom literature in our Bible requires you to look at specific situations, right? I think it's in Proverbs 26 where we have the contradicting Proverbs. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And then do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. Those are both true statements. Those are both good ethical guidelines, but it takes a specific situation to know which one is the right, kind of quote, right or wrong thing to do in that situation. So what love looks like and how love gets translated is the ethical question and takes wisdom to know how to do that. And wisdom comes from a variety of things over a variety of time frames. But wisdom is this confluence of our experiences, both the things that we've read, the life moments we've gone through, the events, the process of what it means to be alive, our community, our traditions, our reason, how our mind works. So our experiences, our community, our traditions, our reason all shape the wisdom that we have and what we bring to a specific situation to determine what is loving here. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways. And that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy. And I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for an Old People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at 
upsem.edu. If you notice, of course, this is similar to Roar's tricycle. If you've listened to that episode, we've talked about uh, you know Richard Roar we had on, and he talked about this tricycle or Wesley's quadrilateral. So these, all of these, help shape how we read the Bible. Our experiences, our community, our traditions, our reason, those all inform what we deem right and wrong, which then gets taken to the Bible. It's, it's a bit of an ethical spiral, if you will. So our, it's like chicken and the egg, right? Our ethical experiences shape how we read the Bible, but then the Bible is part of our experience that helps shape our ethics. So they're not mutually exclusive. Our ethical experience shapes how we read the Bible. You know, my interactions with with women, with people of color, with really any human being has shaped how I read the Bible. And and the Bible is part of my experience that shapes my ethic. I have those deep-rooted teachings that come from the Bible. Now, I would argue those principles I was taught as a kid didn't necessarily just come straight from the Bible, but were emphasized precisely because of the ethics of the tradition I was a part of. We emphasize certain parts of the Bible. There's a reason why I was taught, love your neighbor as yourself. I was taught uh, the moral example of Abraham as a man of faith and David, and I wasn't necessarily taught uh, to emulate the adultery of David or the multiple wives of Abraham. So there's a filter going on. But still, those things from the Bible that was were emphasized were good things and were taught to me, and that was part of how I experienced the world. That was a filter I used. So it's the spiral. Our, sh- our experiences shape how we read the Bible, and our Bible is part of that experience that shapes our ethics. But I, I would say, kind of as we wind this down, it is dangerous to think that the Bible alone gives us an ethic for a few reasons. One, it it wasn't designed to be an ethical rule book. It's not up to the task by itself. By itself, right? Now, if you put it in line with experiences, community, tradition, reason, the Spirit of God guiding us into all truth, then it's adequate, it's helpful, it's a good. But by itself, if you strip all that away, it can be dangerous. It's, It's just not a rule book for how to live your life. It's like a sculpture, right? The raw materials are there, but without the tools that break away the stone and a vision for what it will become, it just stays a rock. So we have the rock and we have to apply our experiences, our community, our traditions, our reason to it so that we can whittle from that rock the statue of our own personal and community ethics. Two, the danger really is when we equate our measuring stick with the Bible itself. When we pretend that we don't filter the Bible, but we just do what it says, and that the Bible is obvious and clear about our morality and right and wrong, then that's dangerous because we're not aware that we all have a filter, that we're all deciding what parts of the Bible to emphasize and what parts to ignore because they don't fit our standard, our ethical standard. Overall, in my, in my tradition, when we talk about right and wrong, we were looking for certainty and objectivity. And I think that's dangerous in any context, the need for certainty and objectivity. Just a list of things we can point to that proves to everyone that we have the right way to live, which really is just us proving to ourselves that we have the right way to live. But that's not, unfortunately, that's not how morality works. Of course, we all wish that it did, but it doesn't. 
you know, each culture globally and locally, each generation has to take what's been passed down to us and we have to struggle with it. We have to revise it. We have to work it out both individually and communally or politically. And when I say communally, I just mean politically, like the polis, like us as a, as a group, as a culture, we have to struggle with it and we have to work it out. And I'm grateful that our ethics change from generation to generation as we come up with new ways of being kinder and gentler and more just to one another. And, and I think that's appropriate and important. And I think we can't avoid it. I think that's what we do because every generation has to figure it out for themselves. So rather than spending all this time searching for this objective moral standard, I'd, I would suggest that we learn to trust the Spirit of God. We start owning our image-bearing responsibility to create our own, I would say, subjective, although I may get in trouble for that, our own subjective moral standards. And by subjective, I just mean standards that we own as our own, not imposed on us as this external rule book, but grown from within us. That's, I think, the move I see in the New Testament um, and a step I think is needed for our Christianity today. And it'll help us avoid making some of those mistakes that we've gone through today. All right. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Just a reminder, we will have a live class on Genesis September 23rd as a lead up, as a ramp up for the launch of our second edition of our book, Genesis for Normal People. But this is a class one night only on Genesis. We normally charge for these classes because they take time and energy. We probably charge about a hundred bucks for this kind of thing. But in this case, no human is going to be turned down for lack of funds. You just pay what you want. And we'd love to have you join us for that. Learn a little bit about Genesis, get to know some other folks. Pete will be leading that and teaching that. So you can just go to the BibleForNormalPeople.com front slash course, and you can look at there. It's also on the, the homepage of the website when you get there. So one night only, class on September 23rd. Pay what you want. We hope to see you there. All right, see you next time.